Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 18 of Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we are here again for your bi-weekly deep dive into a horror movie of our choosing. And we have chosen one that is a little timely. A lot timely. A, a lot timely, <laughs> truly, yes. We, uh, as promised, are going back into the uh, wonderful world of Jordan Peele. And we're talking about us. The movie Us, but also Us as in what we thought about the movie. All of it. It's yes. A, it's a double. I don't know how you say that word. Double entendre. Um, entendre. Entendre. I always like want to say all the letters, but then I'm like, yeah, but in French, you basically wouldn't say any of the letters. Yeah. So. Swallow half of them and slur the rest. <laughs> That's pretty much French. I do Duolingo and French is tough for me because foreign language wise, I come from a German background. Yeah. Where you say all the letters really hard. Yeah. And in yeah. French, it's the total opposite. That is true. Anyways, yeah. there's not any French in this movie. <laughs> no, no, thankfully, no. I digress. We're trying to get ahead of Nope, which comes out. It'll come out the week that this episode comes yeah. out. So exactly. it'll come out the Friday that this episode comes out. So we're trying to kind of head that off. And obviously, we'll try and cover Nope for our listeners as well once it gets to streaming. Yes. Because... We don't want to spoil it for anybody. Yeah, yeah, no spoilers. Plus, it's really, really fun with Jordan Peele movies to go back and watch them a second time. Totally. Like, I found that with both Get Out and with this one, that knowing the reveal at the end and then going back and watching from the beginning and, like, looking for all the signs and the signals, and it's an interesting watch. Yeah. Like, his movies are interesting for a first watch, and then the experience of the second watch is also very interesting. Yeah, it doesn't lose anything, like, value-wise when you have to watch it a second, or when you go back to watch it a second time. It doesn't make you feel like you're wasting time. Because sometimes with a horror movie, you watch it one time and you're like, okay, I know all the tricks. Like, right. I don't really need to go back and watch this again. Unless it, you know, it's a comfort film or whatever. But for these movies, it's almost like watching a different movie when you watch it the second time and you yeah. know what to look for. Yeah, it reminds me of being in film school and we had this professor who was the department head for a while who loved Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And I watched a lot of Hitchcock just growing up. And he would take these movies that you thought you knew and he would sort of key you into like, watch for this, watch for this, look for the symbolism. And it became a whole different movie, like, you know, watching Psycho or The Birds that I had seen over and over again as a kid with a little bit of context and knowing like kind of what to look for made it a kind of transformative experience and just so much fun. And I feel like Jordan Peele is really kind of retaining that same energy in Absolutely. his films, yeah. which is, I mean, really that's lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Like how many horror directors and, you know, filmmakers and writers can you think of off the top of your head where you still have that same originality in each of his movies, not a lot of predictability and also having that like, shining example of being able to rewatch a movie and see something new and get more out of it. Yeah. It's like a sponge that you can just keep like ringing and ringing and ringing. You're like, yes, there's more, there's more. Yeah. Well, and it takes a special director to, to be able to, I mean, I think that's what we should be talking about when we talk about like an auteur mm -hmm. director is, 
somebody whose style is not making the same movie over and over again, but somebody who has a style that can sort of transcend the films and who gives you a lot to look for and plays with a lot of different things, mm -hmm. even if they're making, you know, radically different movies within the same genre or telling different stories. Sure. Well, we are talking about Us, which is a movie centered around a family who goes on a beach vacation and, like we like to say, chaos ensues. Indeed it does. And we have a cast of characters. I know Jordan Peele kind of likes to reuse, you know, uh, not reuse, but he has like a cadre of you yeah. know, his faves. We see that in Get Out. We see that in Us. So we have Lupita Nyong'o, who plays Adelaide. I'll just read off their above yeah. person. <laughs> Adelaide, um, Winston Duke, who plays Gabe, her husband. Elizabeth Moss, who plays their friend Kitty. And Kitty's husband, Josh, who's played by Tim Heidecker. And then we have Adelaide and Gabe's kids, Zora Wilson, played by Shahadi Wright-Joseph. And Evan Alex, who plays their son, Jason. And then there's a couple of other characters. This is actually a pretty limited cast. Yeah. It's not a big cast. But that's our main band of characters. It's sort of insulated. I would almost say it's kind of a claustrophobic horror film. Yeah. Where we're bit. kind of like concentrated on one family. And we're almost entirely in one space until sort of like the third act of the film. It's definitely a departure from Get Out. Uh huh. It's still a family horror movie. It yeah. still has to do a lot with, like, family ties and exploration of bonds between family, chosen family, and also blood family and not chosen family. Like, <laughs> I guess you could say blood family, but we'll crack into that yeah, a little later. Yeah. But something that you were talking about before is, like, thematic elements in movies that a director can touch on and use again and again. And one of the things I know you like to bring up when we talk about Jordan Peele is color. Yes. So why don't you talk about like color palette and choices? Jordan Peele is very, very intentional with his use of color, particularly color is theming. And as I've said before, I'm really excited. I have some guesses about what the color theming is going to be in Nope. We talked about in Get Out his use of black, white, red, and then grays to sort of indicate different people's positions or different emotional tonality. And in this film, the primary color is red. Now we do get some yellow gold action in there too, mm -hmm. uh, and as well as white, mm -hmm. but mainly it's red in this one. And really we see him take kind of what he did and get out with color to a whole nother level in us with that red theming. And it's funny because I noticed it the first time kind of right away, like, oh, okay, red, 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 red. I noticed so much more the second time and it just comes off as even more intentional this time around. Totally. I mean, there is an entire character named Red. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I honestly, when I think about like color palette, I think about it in terms of like, there's this Instagram I follow where they take like, uh, they make color palettes out of scenes and movies, like oh, iconic yeah. scenes and movies. Yeah. And it just makes my brain happy. I don't know. i I don't know if it's like neurodivergence or whatever, but like that is a thing that makes my brain happy. 
And I thought about that in Get Out with like black, white, red, gray. He also uses a lot of blue in that one too. Uh-huh. Like especially when he's in the, um, I can't remember. Sunken Place. I, sunken Place. Yeah. I kept wanting to say the Upside Down, but that's Stranger Things. That's not, <laughs> that's not that. In this one, you really immediately, and after you mentioned red, like I was obviously looking for that. And it truly is everywhere in the shots and it's it is very intentional in such a way too that is it's fascinating how he makes red pop in places where you would think that it's not even an option you know right because they're on the santa cruz boardwalk so they're in a carnival and he's choosing these shots that feature the red carousel the red carny games you know in the background Adelaide as a child, as she's walking down through the boardwalk, she's holding this gigantic red candy apple and her shirt is black with like Michael Jackson's thriller written in red across it. It's very pleasing to the eye to see that like kind of pop of color and it doesn't happen all the time, but it's like subtly incorporated in the movie in a way that is both important thematically and also like very pleasing to see that color palette honored. Definitely. So I really enjoy that. And I'm glad that you brought that up before we watched it again, because I was like, oh, she's totally right. And I think that your guess is about Nope are right, too. But we'll talk about that yeah. when we cover Nope. <laughs> we'll see what happens color-wise there. So I did like that this movie touches a lot on Alice in Wonderland. The thing that I kind of related most closely to Alice in Wonderland, because I wasn't familiar with the story as a kid. I had to read it as an adult. Oh, okay. Um, is like the follow the white rabbit thing. Uh-huh. Obviously, at the very beginning of the movie, we see a shot during the opening credits of white rabbits. Other rabbits, too, but mostly white rabbits across this wall. And then we see Zora in her opening scenes is wearing a shirt that has a white rabbit on it. Uh-huh. And then she has later on a shirt that says rabbit in... Vietnamese, I think. It's in a foreign language. I'm pretty sure it's Vietnamese. I looked up the trivia. Sorry if it's not Vietnamese. but I think it was. Yeah, I think so. But it says rabbit across the front. And then there's all these images of rabbits throughout the movie, both actual rabbits and like paintings or representations of rabbits and also Run Rabbit Run, which is a song that he also used in Get Out. So kind of an interesting thing, pulling us down into the rabbit hole, going into the looking glass, going into the mirror. A lot of those same Alice in Wonderland themes. Also the Red Queen, you know, is that entirely what the movie is about? Definitely not. I don't think so. I just think it's incorporating those important exploratory aspects of Lewis Carroll into this movie. So I wanted to see, what did you think about the use of white rabbits or following the white rabbit? Yeah, I definitely see the Alice in Wonderland parallel there. See, I focus less on the rabbits and more on the idea of descent for this one, uh, which has, of course, Alice in Wonderland ties, like journeys, descents going whether you're going over something, under something, or through something, you know, a journey up, a journey down, etc. For me, the descent is just so important. The descent down into the underground and the ascent up mm-hmm. uh, to the surface level and what that represents in terms of people's identity, in terms of class, all of that, and what the transformative nature of those journeys can be. Yeah. So I look at it that way. But that, I mean, that also relates to Alice in Wonderland because although in Through the Looking Glass, she's going through the looking glass, typically in 
Alice's adventures in Wonderland, you know, as it's portrayed, she goes underground first. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I look at it. And then from the underground, you know, she is transformed in many different ways as she's like going on this journey to find really herself, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what we're seeing in this movie. too. Right. Honestly, Jordan Peele is such a tough read for me because every time we watch one of his movies when I come out of it I'm just like my mind is so blown open right now that I'm not going to have anything to talk about on the podcast (laughs) because his work is so complex and there's so much nuance and like difference that you can read from it that I don't think that there's any one correct way quote unquote yeah you know to watch a movie and actually I'll kind of get into this a little bit more later but I do want to say Every review and discussion and article that I read about this movie, both when we first watched it up until now, and I think it came out March of 2019, everything that I've read about it from then until now, so three years, over three years, every single one has a different read on the movie. Yep. Like, totally different read on the movie. And while I will say that I think that this movie is more about class, yeah, like striation and class than it is that, like, Get Out dealt with race. Yeah. And not to say that this one doesn't also deal with race, but I think the main um, exploration of this movie is class. Still, everybody took something separate from it. Yeah. And I think that that is also kind of a hallmark of a really good, thoughtful, amazingly directed horror movie is for every single person to have something else to say about it. Absolutely. I mean, it's a movie that is so complex that... I don't think that anyone's opinion necessarily could be wrong if it's a valid opinion. If there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. if they're not just like, well, I hate Jordan Peele, so I hate that movie. I don't want to hear about that. Yeah. But I think that this is a movie that could spark conversation for lots of people, even not horror fans, that they could watch that and say, this is what I took from it. And it'd be something completely different than what you or I saw. And I also love it because his work in general is that kind of like really great art where it is connected to, gosh, this is going to sound really lofty, but the themes that he is touching on and the symbolism that he's using is so universal, Mm -hmm. you know, like to human culture, like the themes he's dealing with and the imagery he's using, it's his own, Mm -hmm. but it's also like part of a human history of art that, you know, speaks about our human condition. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I've also read a lot of articles about this film and just his work in general. And these are articles relating his work to literature, to classics, which I want to talk about later, because there's a really uh, great person, a classicist, who has been talking a lot about Jordan Peele's work as it relates to Greek mythology and Greek tragedy. You know, you can look at his work just through the lens of horror Mm -hmm. or through sci-fi, through the lens of race, of class, of all different sorts of things, which to me makes him like a really great storyteller, like you said, that people can apply it to their own experience or to the art that they're interested in, the things that they're interested in studying, and it holds as something to examine in a lot of different contexts. Yeah, I mean, not being a person of color, when I approach these movies, I try to do so with an open mind. I want to hear what the filmmaker has to say, because obviously I don't have you know lived experience right. to apply to it. Which I loved about Get Out is like watching it the first time was scary. Watching it a second time was terrifying. 
not because the movie was scary or not because of the jump scares, but because of what it meant and what it represented. And this movie was scary the first time and more so unsettling yeah. the second time yeah. because of what it has to say about class and what it has to say about looking within the self as the villain and how easily we ignore the suffering that's happening just below our feet, just next door, just outside of our, you know, our own bodies. And that is a truly unsettling thing for you to have to turn your focus inward to say, okay, so yes, I understand that these things are happening. Am I complicit? Am right. I am I going to sit and just allow them to happen? Or will I apply what I can do to help these people? Or will I continue to ignore it? Which I think personally that that makes a horror movie like just whole extra level, like whole next level stuff when it gets under your skin in a real world situation. Yeah. Not just like, oh, well, somebody could bust into your house and, you know, kill your dog or whatever. Right. Because sure, that is a scary, that's some strangers stuff, you know, also scary. But to get under your skin and make you feel and examine who you are as a person and how you live in this world and how you move through this world and how you interact with the people around you, that is a truly like next level film. Yeah. I mean, even outside of horror, like I think that that is like the ultimate goal of film. And I think also randomly, I'm going to relate this tangentially to David Lynch. I think that's why people who do like David Lynch can engage with his movies so much is because for a certain person, they can take what he makes and relate it to what's inside themselves and it makes them feel something. Yeah. Some people, David Lynch makes them feel like they want to laugh because it's hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes they're like, oh, no, this is inside me. I feel this. I relate to this and it sticks with me. And I feel that about some David Lynch movies. I'm not going to say I hate the dude, but it's got to be the right movie. Sure, sure. But I just mean, like, in general, I think that that is a sign of a really talented, long-lasting, incredible filmmaker is to make you feel something about your own life and your own self. Yeah, definitely. I think the way that this movie, I mean, Get Out certainly, too. It's, as you say, like, it's scary to me on a second watch for kind of two differing and yet related reasons you know on the one hand it's like to quote another movie that i love i heard huckabee's how am i not myself mm-hmm. you know to sort of look at how are we true to ourselves or not how do we betray ourselves how do we honor ourselves and then to take that idea and like advance it forward and say okay how do i as myself or not myself contribute to systems of oppression in the world that feel sometimes so big that they feel outside of myself. Mm -hmm. And yet every action we do can help or harm. Yeah. You know, those are big, scary, intimidating things. And especially as you start to examine your own self and your own reality, they become like scarier and more unsettling when you start to think about, you know, all of the times when you harmed instead of helping or in helping, in thinking you were helping, you harmed. Yeah. Um, That can be very uncomfortable, but like the examination of it is good and art that can make us think about those things is always a good thing in my opinion. 
Yeah, it's like the butterfly effect of shittiness. <laughs> yeah, the butterfly effect of shittiness. I'm yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I Like, it, it really is. Like, you think about all of the small actions that you take that ended up, you know, like accumulating butterfly wings flapped in and it created a shitstorm and then yeah. <laughs> of terribleness. So, like, I know that I'm, you know, being reductive, but really this movie... It seems silly, like the doppelganger idea. Doppelganger idea has been done before. Yeah. There are other movies where we have doppelgangers. I mean, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like classic movie about doppelgangers. But I don't think that the ideas necessarily are original, but the combination of these several ideas doppelgangers puppeteers the the upper crust the below you know the taking like the wanting to ascend into a different role and thus having to kill and do whatever you need to in order to get there and then not wanting to do anything more yeah like that is really the scary thing is like i mean we've seen lots of movies where you have somebody clamoring for a different status or clamoring to get somewhere else. But it's always for a certain reason. Well, once I get here, I can do X. Or once I do this, then I can help this person up with me. But the truly scary thing to me about this movie is that once the tethered get outside, they get up there and they have their moment, they don't want to do anything else. They want to be seen. Yeah, they want to be acknowledged yeah. as as Americans. I love that that's one of the first things that Red says when they get into the house. She says, we're Americans. Yeah. You know, and it's like kind of when you don't know what's going on, you're kind of like, huh, huh, that's funny or that's weird or yeah. that's, that's whatever or that, you know, has a lot of loaded meaning, but... When you know what she means when she says that, like, we're Americans, it gets real, real, like, real fast. Yeah. All of them are all of us. Exactly. They are us. Yeah. There's so much, so many layers to this movie. And if you just watch it on a surface level, it is a scary movie. I mean, it's a home invasion movie. It's scary to have somebody break into your safe space or even your temporary safe space in a vacation home. But the extra layers that go into Jordan Peele's movies just like chef's kiss. Yeah. It's harder to watch. And this movie especially is not a movie that I want to watch all the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I do watch it, I want it to be special. And I never want that like patina to rub off i always want to be able to sit with the movie and be like damn that really was like that was it that was what i wanted yeah same with get out i mean i think that get out is probably more digestible for me because i think something that i thought after we watched us for the first time because this is only my second watch right of this one yeah something that i thought after the first time is i was like man this movie is so much more representational then Get Out is. Uh-huh. Get Out is a little bit more direct. I think it leads the viewer. So we are led through, you know, the ups and downs. And it's more of a story that's a little easier to follow. Yeah. Versus this movie where I thought, man, this is so much more representational. There's so much more cerebral thinking that's going on while you're watching this movie, which I think turns some folks off. 
Yeah. And I think one of the other things that bothers people about this movie, a criticism that I have heard that I was watching for this time, and I don't know, this is just the way my brain works. Like, it didn't bother me. In fact, it was a feature, not a bug, is that <laughs> um, we don't get a lot of explanation beyond what Red tells us about the tethered. Mm -hmm. I caught a line this watch around during Red's, one of her final speeches where she says, you know, long ago, like from my understanding, because that's the thing we have to remember is even Red doesn't know the whole story here. Right. Red only knows what she's been able to glean in her life with very limited communication with all of the people around her. Mm -hmm. But she basically says, what I think happened is that Long ago, the tethered were created so that the people in power could control other people. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work. And so the tethered were forgotten and abandoned. But they kept existing. And they kept, you know, living and moving on. And, you know, they lived off rabbits. And we get little snippets about what their lives are like mm -hmm. and how they have continued to endure i wouldn't say thrive because that's the whole point of the movie sure and i know that for some people they were like well i need all of the backstory spelled out yeah like when were they created why were they created who created them how did they live this long underground etc to me the not knowing is more fun because i like to be able to sit and imagine the mythology and especially with the information that they've given us and then the context that we have and what we start to conclude about class, especially mm -hmm. after watching this movie, in my head, I can imagine exactly who and when and why the Tethered were created. Right. And I don't need the movie to tell me that. Like, I don't need Jordan Peele to tell me that. I've kind of got that figured out in my head using my own context and using other art and history and things like that. Sure. And I love that. But I know that for some people, they really want and need everything just like they need the filmmaker to tell them this is this, this is that, etc. Yeah. I didn't think about it the first time I watched. But this time when I was watching, I was like, oh, because we get the context that at the very beginning of the movie in just a couple of lines of text that that's tethered exist in underground tunnels and uh -huh. underground spaces all over the world. And like people don't know. I was thinking, oh, that's interesting that the people who are on the boardwalk are directly above the people who happen to be tethered to them. And what about if somebody travels and things like that? But we don't get that spelled out and we don't really need it yeah. spelled out. Likewise, are the tethered only in America mm -hmm. or are there tethered all over the world? You right. know, especially with the context of hands across America, mm -hmm. you wonder if this is a uniquely American phenomenon mm -hmm. which i think says one thing it sure. could also be a global phenomenon which says another thing mm -hmm. again it could go either way and right i could see the value in it going either way for the sake of the story and the context yeah and we have to remember too the tethered with the exception of red but only by way of you know her swap the tethered don't have communication. Right. They have no way to communicate. They don't read. They don't write. They don't speak. So the concept of God, which I thought was also interesting and kind of a 
like telling you a little bit ahead of time what the end of the movie was going to be about is because Red mentions God yeah. in her speech to Adelaide towards the end. How would Red know about God? But also, how could Red know about the history of the tethered if none of them speak and right. none of them write or read and they just do the things that their people above ground do? So it's really, it's truly interesting that she has gleaned that this much at all. It's so layered and the idea, like what you were saying, ascending and descending and also being a puppeteer. Yeah. So that is something that I did not get the first time that I absolutely got this time and was really powerful is that Red says people in power made us to be able to control other people. So to me, what that means is that those underground, the tethered, were able to control those above ground. And then it flipped at some point. Yes. Yeah. 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 So now, whatever the person who's doing above ground, whatever they're doing, the tethered has to, they're bound to do it. Until Red, being the only one of them who can speak, albeit not very well, tells them, you don't have to do this. Yeah. And that's all it takes. Because as soon as she says, I'm different, and they realize she's different, she can help them they immediately stop doing what they're yeah. tethered are doing above ground, which I I think is fascinating. It's something I didn't notice the first time, but all it took was for Red to bring speech into, uh-huh. like, just spoken word, and immediately that's all they needed to be able to break out of what they were doing. Yeah. So super fascinating. It's education and, and what you were saying about forbidden knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It really, really struck me this time around. This whole idea of forbidden knowledge, you know, if if we want to get, I know we're not covering Midnight Mass anymore, but let's get biblical for a minute. <laughs> I mean, you see this in mythology from all different cultures, this idea of forbidden knowledge, you know, or knowledge being sacred or who is allowed to have knowledge. And if you go all the way back to like, you know, Adam and Eve and the tree of knowledge and the garden of good and evil and blah, blah, blah. Knowledge is powerful mm-hmm. and knowledge can be dangerous. Knowledge is dangerous to the one in power because knowledge is a tool for free will. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. Right. Red has knowledge, has knowledge that nobody else has. It gives her free will and it gives her agency. Mm -hmm. And as she is able to figure out how to impart that knowledge to others, she is helping to, I don't want to say grant, but she's helping to empower those around her to find their own agency. And it's broken. I mean, it's it's not perfect. They, the tethered still don't speak. They still... Um, they kind of do what Red tells them. They all wear the red jumpsuit. They all wear the one glove. They all have the gold shears. But they still are able to break out of their puppet selves. They're able to break out of their tunnel homes and their underground spaces and then go and do what they want, which Red has convinced them is 
the Hands Across America thing. Yeah. <laughs> Which, that was another thing, like, to get back into kind of the more literal movie space, that was another thing I noticed this time that I didn't notice before, is when Jason breaks off when they're at the beach, and he sees the man after he comes out of the bathroom, and he sees the man facing away from him wearing the trench coat with the blood dripping off of his hands. That's the first... Who yep. bro- who's broken free and he's standing there waiting for other people to grab his hands. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't realize that. Well, it's, I mean, how would you know? Like right. the first time you watch it. Yeah. Because it just looks like a random, you know, rowdy dude at the beach. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. with blood on his hands for some reason. But I mean, we don't question beach, beach goers. No, no. <laughs> so... Another thing, kind of going back towards the literal movie, is that uh, when I watched this the second time, it is so much more obvious that the reason why we are unsettled by the beginning of the movie, because I don't know about you, but the first time I watched this, I felt like the f- whole first act was was fairly unsettling. I couldn't get my footing in the movie. I didn't really know. I mean, the trailer didn't give much way, which kudos to him. But I couldn't really get a good sense of what the movie was going to be or where we were inside of the movie space during the first act. And I realized this time that the reason why we don't is because Adelaide is not in the right place either. Yeah. Because she's been swapped. The reason why we don't get our footing is because Adelaide does not have her footing in this space, going to the beach, going to Santa Cruz Beach, where she was, you know, her swap was completed. And the other part of it is she is trying to defend herself from being swapped back or being killed. Right. Which you don't know the first time. So that's like literally in the last three minutes of the movie. (laughs) Yeah. And the swap part of it is interesting because even based on the trailer, you kind of know, okay, you know, the trailer told us, all right, so there's a mirror family or a doppelganger family or something. That part was obvious. And because we start with that flashback of young Adelaide, you think, okay, so surely she must have, and you know, she, we know she encountered her doppelganger. But what we don't know is mm-hmm. that they swapped. Exactly. And that's like the beautiful reveal. Yeah. And we get that a lot too. We get little like treats throughout the movie that kind of explain where we're going with this whole thing. The fact that Red is the only one who speaks. We never see any of them do anything more than like croak or like scream. Yeah. You know, kind of grunt. Yeah. So I just, I think that that is truly, if you've seen the movie one time, you should definitely go back and watch it one more time. I think that there's enough in there that you'll be pleased that you've watched it again. Even maybe if you didn't think it was for you the first time. Yeah. Like, give it another go. Yeah. It's a type of movie that evolves over time and, unfortunately, becomes more and more relevant. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I have a question for you. Oh, gosh. I I have two. I have two, but I'll start with this one. Oh, boy. They're kind of related. Okay. Do you think that Adelaide repressed what she did to Red until the very end? Or do you think she was conscious of the fact, not that they swapped, I I mean, I know she was aware that they swapped the whole time, but the fact that she choked her, that she chained her up, you know, that she didn't just switch places, but she intentionally, with some kind of ill intent, 
switched places. Did she remember that or was she blocking that out? So I didn't even think of that until you just mentioned it. So it was not an organic thought that I had. But now that you've said that, it totally would make sense because as the movie goes on, it seems like Adelaide does change as a person. Yeah. Like she's one person at the start of the movie and then we see her scared, we see her afraid, then we see her defiant, angry, vicious, violent. So yeah, I think that this movie is sort of about her undoing, about undoing herself from Adelaide and making herself red again. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that she probably did suppress it. She remembered the traumatic experience at the boardwalk, but I don't think that she remembered all of it. What do you think? Did you think that? I went back and forth. Yeah. You know, I didn't honestly remember exactly how evil she was, mm-hmm. you know, or air quotes evil. I remembered that they swapped and I remembered that it was definitely her doing, but I didn't remember the violence of it. Yeah, me neither. And I thought that that was really interesting. And that's kind of at the very, very end as we get, you know, the sort of pieced out flashbacks throughout the whole movie, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking a lot about the intentionality of it. Mm -hmm. Because you could almost say it was childhood innocence Mm -hmm. until we get that thing at the very end. Yeah. You know, like, oh, here's a girl that looks just like me. We're going to swap shirts. You know, maybe we're friends. Oops, I'm going to go wander out and she gets stuck down here. It could be very innocent, but it was not. Yeah. So that's why I started thinking about that when we got that final flashback. I was like, oh, right. Yeah. This was very intentional in a very interesting way. Yeah, good point. I mean, she could have just like, she choked her. Right. You know, she choked her out and then dragged her down the stairs. And And handcuffed her to the bed. Yeah. And it seems like, too, this is not a short distance. We see Adelaide go down there later in the movie and it doesn't seem like it's a short walk. It's, yeah. It, you know, you have to go a little ways in order to get to the space where all of the tethered lived. So for her to drag her all the way down there and then chain her to the bed. And then not only that, but make eye contact before she leaves. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. It's chilling. <laughs> it is chilling. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Here's my other question. Okay. Slightly unrelated, but also related because we're still talking a lot about Adelaide. Okay. What did you think about this movie in terms of what it has to say about imposter syndrome? Oh, boy. (laughs) Because I was thinking a lot about that as we were watching it. So both imposter syndrome and then I guess something related to imposter syndrome, and maybe this is imposter syndrome, but I just don't know that that's also what it covers in the umbrella, how you're supposed to feel. Yeah. So like, that's how I related it while I was watching is feeling how you're supposed to feel and keying into what other people think of a thing. So like going to the beach, you're supposed to be stoked about going to the beach, right? You're supposed to be excited. You know, you get to go there and I guess drink. I'm also not a beach person. So I don't know, do beach stuff, play volleyball. (laughs) We just saw Top Gun or Maverick recently. So maybe play volleyball, drink. Put your feet in the ocean. <laughs> I'm like get struggling. Really sandy. I yeah. don't. Yeah. Get get a terrible sunburn. <laughs> but like Adelaide's husband is trying. To, like, oh, you know, I really want to get on the boat. I want to go to the beach. You know, Jason was he was really excited about going to the beach too, and she's just like, mm-hmm, and she's just not feeling it. Yeah. But so, what was there something specific that you thought about in uh, imposter syndrome? I think 
just this idea of when she starts to kind of freak out at the vacation house before Red and the family get there. And she starts to sort of say, like, I don't feel comfortable here, etc. Mm-hmm. To me, and this is me putting a lot of myself onto this, it felt like she was very quickly coming to the realization, I don't belong here. All of these things that I have, this family, this vacation house, this vacation, are they really mine? And although I am the person that earned them, Mm -hmm. I'm not the person that's supposed to have earned them. So Mm -hmm. are they mine by rights? And because I don't feel like they're mine, how quickly could they be taken from me? Okay. So in that case, yes, that absolutely, I think, is a thing. I think that that is part of the reason why we get Adelaide on unsure footing, because she feels that exact way. She feels this is not mine, and I have to do everything possible so that I don't have to go back to where I came from. Yeah. I don't have to go back. I don't have to descend again both in terms like physical terms and you could also say class terms absolutely because for all intents and purposes it seems like they live a fairly comfortable middle class lifestyle they have the benefit of vacation home they have a boat albeit shitty they have a nice car it looks like a mercedes so yeah like they're both college educated right because you see um gay wearing a howard university shirt like these are, yeah, these are like upper middle class folks. Yeah, they seem comfortable and she doesn't want to give up that comfort knowing that if she goes back down to where the tethered live, she's going to be eating raw rabbit. Right. And that's it. Yeah. And the other thing I think, so I'm transitioning a tiny bit, but yeah. the idea of choice. Uh-huh. So... When the tethered live, and and Red kind of tells us this when she's telling this like messed up fable when we first meet them, she says that she fell in love with a prince, but it didn't matter because, you know, Adelaide fell in love with her prince. So to me, I'm like, okay, so the tethered have a tiny bit of autonomy, it seems like, and we know that by simple virtue of swapping, Adelaide was able to come out of the tethered and be a regular person in society. All it took was for her to get out of there. But yeah, that was a chilling idea to me is that they don't have a choice. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they want, no matter what in their head they think they want, they get whatever their, I guess, puppet master, you know, gets above ground yeah it's kind of a chilling idea well i'll tell you the line that really really chilled me it being you know july of 2022 was the part about the birth of the sons oh my god you know where she said she refers to her as the girl in this fable and then the girl had a son and he was difficult to birth so they cut him out of her but the one underground didn't have that. And so she had to struggle to give birth on her own. I was like, well, there it is. Yeah. There, there it is. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's uncomfortable because, I mean, both living, you know, being assigned female, it's uncomfortable to hear that you would be forced at all. But it's a whole, I mean, 
couldn't have known in March 2019. Right. What we know now. Right. So. Um, but it does speak to that whole concept. I mean, it goes into a whole privilege thing. Yeah. You know, the thing that people have always said with threats to Roe v. Wade specifically is getting rid of Roe v. Wade doesn't mean abortion goes away. Yes. It means that safe abortions are only available to the rich. Exactly. You know, and we see this disparity in medicine in general in this Mm -hmm. country that, you know, for a certain class or economic status of people, they can have all the health care they want and it's not a struggle. But if, you know, even in a post-Obamacare world, if you're poor, you don't get the health care that you, you know, that other people get. Yeah, or any healthcare. Or any healthcare. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. <laughs> it's like it gets it gets like the lack of autonomy for the tethered is truly terrifying and we see it like both viscerally in the birthing story but also Kitty's tethered. I can't remember her name, but Yeah. So Kitty talks about having plastic surgery earlier in the movie and she's like, you know, just a little bit whatever. I mean, I'm fully pro plastic surgery. I'm pro choice in any you know body modification situation but she says she has plastic surgery and when we see kitty's tethered she also has had plastic surgery because she has these scars on her cheeks that do not look as attractive as kitty's but the difference there is her tether doesn't have the option she doesn't get plastic surgery she cuts herself because she has to because she's just tethered she doesn't have the option And it's sort of like to kind of go back to your mention about pro-choice. I mean, people who are poor now and don't have a choice whether or not they have a kid are just, you know, they're born into poverty and then it continues that poverty cycle. It's the same thing with the tethered. And yeah, yeah, you and I might not feel like, I mean, obviously we're not hopefully not living in a situation where we have tethered, you know, folks living underground that are attached to us. But if you're upper class in this country, you absolutely are puppeteering somebody oh, yeah. who is that who is poor. And you might not be doing it directly. You might not be, it's definitely not going to be somebody who looks exactly like you. But if you're a rich person in this country, you puppeteer hundreds of people, potentially thousands of people mm-hmm. by just profiting off of their labor. Yep. And it's sort of the same thing here. At least that's what the intention was. Oh, Although yeah. it was supposed to be one-to-one. Um, that's simpler, obviously, for our brains to understand is one-to-one. But the tool of using a doppelganger to see suffering, mm-hmm. because it's very easy to mention an entire class of people, like we're saying poor people. We can just easily throw out that term and say poor people. That is a faceless, mm-hmm. nameless mm-hmm. mass of people the majority of this country. But if it's your face, yeah. if you are affecting a person who has your face and is your age and looks just like you, that is something entirely different. And I think that's the statement is like, yeah. what does it look like when you are causing suffering to somebody with your face mm-hmm. who looks just like you? Mm-hmm. And how can you overcome that? Do you accept the fact that you're doing that? Or will you fight for that person? Yeah. That person who's suffering with your face. Mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of part of the message in the movie. Oh, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. So I was reading a couple of articles while we were watching this movie about reviews on this movie. And 
I saw one article call this perilously close to elevated horror. Oh, God. I saw... (sighs) So what I saw in reviews of this movie is a dichotomy of folks complaining that this is too much cerebral thinking or too much jump scares. This is too much talking about class, not enough scariness, not enough horror, too much horror. Like, it's just... This movie seems like it's caught in a dichotomy of... Do you think that that's... Because of the subject matter, or do you think it's because it's Jordan Peele? I think it's both. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's both. I think that there are a lot of people who are still threatened by his position in the horror community and in the filmmaking community, you know, for a lot of different reasons. I think that because he comes from comedy, it's convenient for a lot of people to not say the thing that is within them which is deeply ingrained racism and be like oh well he's a comedian and like he doesn't know horror blah blah yeah. blah and it's like <laughs> no it's because he's a black guy making horror like come on yeah. you know just say the quiet part just say it you know so i think i think it's that i think some of it's him and i also think it some of it is a combination of him and this you know sort of I don't even want to say backlash, but this kind of stubborn, dug-in sensibility of some horror fans to not be able to say, like, this is a horror film that's just not for me. Mm-hmm. That, like, if it's it's a cerebral horror film, if it's air quotes elevated horror, which I'm kind of, like, already sick of that term. <laughs> you know, if it's a movie that... A horror film that isn't just like a bunch of people getting hacked up and it actually has something to say. And most of those do too, by the way. Sure. That it's not valid as horror. And that just drives me crazy. Like, it can be a valid horror film and it can just be not for you. Like, there are a couple of movies, modern ones, one of which I hope we're going to cover soon, that I just don't like. You know, but they're still valid as part of the genre. And I recognize that other people like them and like, great, good for you. I just it's just not for me. And that's okay. But there are a lot of people in fandom in general that think that everything has to be for them. And if it's not for them, whatever their identity is, it's not valid at all. Yeah. You know, that they are the end all be all of that particular fandom. And so I think this falls into that trap too. It's yeah. a both and. Yeah. It's okay to say I didn't like it. Yeah. It's not okay to say if somebody asks your opinion, you should say I didn't like it. You yeah. shouldn't say that's a bad movie. Exactly. Because you, just because you didn't like it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Yeah. There was a movie that we all saw recently, a non-horror film, that I think I was the only person in our group of eight people that didn't like it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and it was a very well-made movie. Yeah. It was a great movie, and I'm glad everybody else liked it. Didn't work for me. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. It's not that it shouldn't be made or anything. Just didn't work for me. Yeah. Juliet's saying that um, because I paid her and also because I beat her up before. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, no that's not true. <laughs> So what did you want to say about mythology? Oh, yeah, yeah. So tell me about this because I am, like, fascinated. I have no idea what, what you're going to talk about. Yeah, so. <laughs> so this is a bit of a roundabout story. So I'm going to I'm gonna shout a couple people out, actually, because Yay. they're all awesome. So 
One of my favorite current podcasts is Let's Talk About Myths Baby. Oh my gosh, I love it. Which is so great. Yes. We love Let's Talk About Myths Baby. We love Liv. She's she's doing awesome work. And one of the many things I love about that podcast are the conversation episodes where she's talking to people who are in the classics field now who are doing amazing new thinking and writing and research, stuff that I really wish was around. And people people that are kind of like, were probably studying at the same time that I was, mm-hmm. that I really wish were already like writing and publishing when I was studying classics, because I might have stayed in the field. <laughs> I was literally just thinking that. I was like, maybe Juliet would be the classics maven instead I, yeah, of... <laughs> yeah, I probably would have had more incentive to stay in the field if the people that are writing and publishing now that Liv is talking to, we're doing that then. But I think we're all about the same age, so the world just wasn't ready yet. <laughs> <laughs> they're trailblazers, but... Yes, they're trailblazers. Yeah. So um, a guest that has been on that podcast a couple of times is Vanessa Stovall, who is a classicist. And on her second appearance on the podcast, it was an episode for Halloween about mm. scream queens in Greek mythology. <gasps> yes, that which sounds is amazing. Which is a great episode. We'll link it up in the show notes because it's fabulous. And as a passing mention... Vanessa said, oh, and by the way, I've been thinking a lot about Jordan Peele's Us and how it relates to, among other things, Persephone. Oh, so boom, of course. I was yeah. there. You know, <laughs> that's been my thing in classics, too, is Persephone. So I started reading uh, some of Vanessa's work. She's got an amazing Medium blog, and she's got a really awesome Twitter thread all about how Catabasis or catabasis, depending on your pronunciation, and us relates to Greek tragedy and Greek mythology. So catabasis is the act of descending, and it's mm-hmm. typically in mythology related to a descent into the underworld or an underground space, a sort of transformational journey downward. Um, Orpheus traveling to the underworld okay. to rescue Eurydice is a perfect example of this. So I don't want to rehash everything Vanessa said because I want you all to go check out her Twitter thread about this. But she relates us to several Greek myths uh, and plays, including the Persephone myth and including Iphigenia at Alice. So if you're a classics nerd like me or you're just a Jordan Peele nerd and you want to hear people contextualize this movie in a different way, check out this uh, Twitter thread and check out Vanessa Stovall's work because... I can totally see it. Having read this, I reread a couple of her threads just this morning ahead of this watch. And that journey downward when we see Adelaide going all the way down and this sort of twists and turns, there is a definite mythological parallel there to the descent, whether we talk about the descent into Hades in Greek mythology, the descent into the Inferno by Dante, there are a lot of different myths you could put onto that, but this movie fits right into it, and it's fantastic. Likewise, Anabasis or Anabasis, the journey of going up, is also significant. And obviously, within that swap between Red and Adelaide, we have both a descent and an ascent. Dang. Yeah. I love stuff like that. Stuff yeah. like that. I'm just like, yay, let's be really nerdy. <laughs> 
Well, and I think, too, that Jordan Peele is a good enough writer and researcher and director that I'm sure that those are things that he did want to consciously incorporate into. And, you know, it's not, like, wrong to say, like, okay, these things are related, even if they didn't maybe intend for it to be. Yeah. But, like... I think that he did intend for those like transformative because a a transformation story also, especially like physical ascent and descent is worldwide. That's like, you know, so I think that that would have been on purpose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the type of thing, as I was saying earlier, even if it wasn't intentional, there are certain things in terms of symbol and ritual that are just like baked into us as humans and like. Ascents and descents being significant and transformational, just like liminal spaces being significant and transformational. Mm -hmm. That's like baked into our human DNA and it's baked into our storytelling. So even if he wasn't like, I'm going to parallel this Greek myth, he was speaking to something that is part of storytelling and is a tool in storytelling and is used to represent something throughout all of humanity in in the way we tell our stories. So speaking of all of humanity and the way we tell our stories, one of the articles I read today about this movie and something that I kind of formed my opinion on when basically when I said that everybody takes something different away from this Mm -hmm. movie and none of it is wrong. I read this Vulture article called The Native Imagery of Jordan Peele's Us Explained, and it's by Mm. Emmy Scott, and we can link this up too. But basically, being a Native American and Indigenous person and reading the imagery and the symbolism in the movie, basically contextualizing white people appropriating the Find Yourself movement and Uh like using Native practices to quote-unquote find themselves. So... When Adelaide first enters the funhouse, it's got an image of a Native American with like a headdress and it says, find yourself underneath. And I think it's actually, it's got a specific name and I am blanking on that. Oh, it's, I'm sorry. It's called the Shaman Vision Quest Forest. Oh, wow. So like all of the appropriative language right there. That's, yeah. Yeah. And the quote unquote Indian theme of it has a totem pole. It has an owl. It has somebody who's supposed to sound Native American with a voiceover kind of like telling you this whole thing and you're supposed to go through and find yourself. So I thought it was interesting. And and that's kind of what I meant, like somebody taking something totally different out of it. Because before I read this article, I had not thought of that at all. The fact that white people, especially in the 2010s, had appropriated this whole like find yourself movement. Mm -hmm. They started burning sage and they started talking about spirit animals and and shaman quests and all this stuff. Forget the hair feather nightmare of the 2010s. And that's another thing um, that kind of like made me think about that is uh, when they're on the beach and Kitty shows Adelaide, she's flipping through this magazine. She says, don't you think this is so gorgeous? And it's a model wearing a headdress. And it's like, okay, I didn't, watch closely for signs of it past that but it is something that when Adelaide goes in kind of the idea that she's not able to speak she's speaking in sort of this foreign language when read when they they first switch you know Mm -hmm. she's not really able to speak and she's not understood in this new world you know oh man and now I'm really thinking about and I'll have to go back and watch this the removal of indigenous children from their oh, families boy. and the yeah. assimilation. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to rewatch it with, with that specific lens because I think, I think there could be something there too. Yeah. I mean, 
truly, in this article, they mentioned that this movie has sparked a thousand theories. And yeah. really, this this is the movie of a thousand theories. But it's just another aspect to this movie that if I hadn't read this article, I would never have thought about. Yeah. I would only have thought about it face value. Like, yeah, in the 80s, we were still appropriating Native American culture and, mm-hmm. like, people were still kind of clueless about this and well some people were clueless about it and some people were purposefully appropriating yeah. it yeah. but yeah I, I would not have thought more critically about it so I'm really thankful that Emmy Scott wrote this article on Vulture so I definitely encourage you to read this if you haven't it's very very fascinating and they also make the comparison because there's a lot of comparisons in the movie to The Shining a lot uh-huh. of homages to that. And, of course, The Shining revolves around them being at the, the Overlook Hotel, um, which was built on a Native American burial ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this movie being kind of a parallel to The Shining, the twins and things like that, the family driving to their vacation home, blah, blah, blah. There are also some poltergeist parallels, which also deals with Native American burial ground. being Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That is a horror trope that, you know, we used a lot in movies in the late 70s and through the 80s. But I think this is a criticism of that, you know, like like you're not just allowed to traipse all over, you know, people's holy uh, experiences and rituals for the sake of a horror movie. Mm -hmm. In this one, we're going to actually explore and examine that. So I definitely recommend reading that article. It's quite fascinating. So. This is a movie that has been talked about so much, and I don't ever get tired of hearing other people, for the most part, other people's uh, <laughs> theories on it. There are yeah. a couple people where I'm like, mm, pass it. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah hard pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'll be excited. As I said last time with Get Out, I like looking at Jordan Peele's movies individually. I also like looking at his films as part of a body of work. And so I'll be really excited to add Nope to that body of work and to sort of contextualize it both on its own and alongside Get Out and Us and sort of see, you know, where the themes go, the imagery that's used, all of that. Yeah, I wonder what he's going to tackle next. Maybe capitalism. Maybe. (laughs) I hope so. So we've got race. We have class. I wonder what the next one is going to be. I think nope. Well, I don't want to get too wild with my nope theories. Too wild? It can't be too wild. Yeah. Wild out, Juliet. Go on. I wonder if nope is going to be about the nature of faith. Ooh. Well, I'm my body is ready. Yeah. Um, post-midnight mass, I'm ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have a bunch of cool stuff happening. We do. Later, do. probably the, later this month. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Coming up. Coming we're, soon. We're not bad planners. We just want to be ready. Yeah. We're busy. And <laughs> yes. we're trying to make sure that we have our, our little horror ducks in a row. Yes. But for our next movie, uh, is this this is another this is another you've seen it, but I <laughs> No, neither of us have seen this. Oh, you one. haven't seen this one either. Okay, no, great. No, great. I just bought it on a whim. Okay. I heard so much about it and with the okay, so I heard a ton about it. I've never seen it. Got some of my favorite actors in it. And in May, when the brief got leaked for the Roe v. Wade reversal, I was like, oh, we need to talk about this. Because we had touched on it in a couple of our other episodes. But I was like, we need to talk about this because this has to do with female autonomy. Mm -hmm. 
And then um, we touched on it in our Red Queen Kills Seven Times episode. Okay. And then I was like, oh, well, I've heard about this movie and it deals with that. And now more than ever, I think that we need to go back 41 years and watch this movie and discuss where we're at for healthcare autonomy now. So I'm excited. Excellent. So it's going to be The Possession. Yes. Next time. Yay. And as always, rate, review, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And keep your eye on the socials for more announcements. Oh my gosh, they're coming. They're coming. It's going to be good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.